Hello, world. Welcome to Asking VCs for Money. I'm Aaron Harris. My guest this week on Asking VCs for Money is Raphael Uzan, the founder and CEO of A-Team. Raphael has been a lot of things over the years. He's built products, built companies, built nonprofits, and built a killer home broadcasting setup. We're going to talk about the $55 million Series A he raised from Insight and Tiger. It's a good story, so let's dive in. Raphael, nice to see you. It's great to see you, Aaron. So I could say a lot about Raphael and all the things that I've learned from him over the years, but I'm actually going to turn it over to you first and ask you to introduce yourself, and we'll go from there. That sounds great. And, uh, you know, I couldn't possibly... Uh, describe all the things that I've learned from you over the years, but uh, maybe it's a good start to tell you just how grateful I am um, for for like those many years of friendship when I was still just a kid trying to do startups. Um, and in a way, maybe you asked me to introduce myself. So, so in one way, I'm still a kid trying to do startups. I grew up in France, was uh, got into programming somehow, and that was the luckiest thing I could possibly get into um, because it gave me an opportunity to build things. And building things quickly became my mission and uh, and the thing I care about most. Um, so much so that I actually had to leave France because not too many people cared about this stuff. And turns out there's not much you can do on your own. I then moved to Israel uh, where suddenly it was cool to build startups and to innovate on stuff. Um, got connected to the U.S., started working back and forth between the U.S. and Israel. And I've played around the idea of A-Team quite a lot. Um, in all kinds of version until it finally clicked that that desire always had to build great things with the, that I choose to work on with people that I want to work with. It's actually something that we kind of all want, but we can't exactly get it. So we've started uh, getting together as an early team to think about this very simple question. Could we enable highly skilled professionals in tech, kind of product builders, to escape rigid structures of employment and team up with people they want to work with Mm -hmm. to build things that matter to them with full autonomy and earning well doing so. And with that question, we started introducing cloud-based teams into the world. It was early 2020. Um, we had raised a seed um, like literally a couple of weeks before the pandemic hit. When you raised your seed, yeah. do you remember what the one-liner for the company was? You know, the one-liner is always the hardest. Like I think at every yeah. stage you can ask like, what's your one-liner? And just like, ah. um, but... Yeah, I think it was at the time it was a professional network for the most highly skilled builders to team up and okay. do their best work. Um, but okay. fundamentally, the the even shorter one liner, the thing that really got us like got us like to feel like we were aligning ourselves not just with building a company but with something we deeply care about was empowering builders, like people who can build, and that was our bet. So empowering builders, like it's it's almost that's almost a mission statement versus a mm -hmm. what do we actually do as a business? Yeah. When you went out to raise that seed, how much did you raise in the seed? Five. Five million. From was there and there was an anchor on that. So it was less about the fundraise at the time. Like I was not thinking about it as mm -hmm. like oh we got a fundraise and then we can do this and we can do that. I think it was more of a question of I've learned by then you can't necessarily decide on the outcome. But there's right. one thing you can absolutely control, and that's the people that you work with. And you people you bring together. Mm. Uh, and in every version of our one-liner, we talk about a network, a community of builders. 
right? And that starts with the people you bring around the table. And every person, particularly at the beginning, matters so much. So for us, one area where the experts in teams work um, and how to organize work. So that was like bringing people like Dan Ariely, like Adam Grant, like people like that, that you can't, they're so invaluable that mm-hmm. in terms of their knowledge and their expertise and be thinking about some of these problems for way longer than I have. I think one of the things that a lot of founders would struggle with at this point, which it seems you almost had this just instant answer, is who are those people that best fit, you know, whatever expertise you need that you want in your investor set? And then maybe even trickier, how the hell do you get to them? You know, saying, oh, yeah, well, we got Dan Ariely. How do you go and do that, right? How do you go and figure out who it is and then find your way to that person in a way that is compelling to say, oh, by the way, we're raising money for our startup. Can we have some of yours, please? Because you don't need specifically his capital. Capital is capital. Right. You wanted his expertise that came along with the capital. How do you do that? You know, what? what are, one of my biggest uh, lear, uh, journeys, like the challenge uh, in that uh, kid doing startup uh, years, which I'm very much still in, uh, is asking for help. It's always hard mm. to ask for help. And yeah. I always had a hard time with that. Um, maybe it's about the, uh, it's uncomfortable to show weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you just feel like you don't want to bother people. And I had to learn that basically it is actually valuing someone that to ask for their help and that unlocked kind of that learning that you can get to anyone they may not be interested but you can definitely get to them if you come in with a genuine kind of admiration for their work and for who they are and what they can do and you come in you know kind of hey i'm doing this i think you'd be interested here's why more times that that i would expect it actually just works i mean i've brought in incredible people that i that i got to by a linkedin cold message like, literally, can you please give feedback on, on this thing that I'm building? Um, because that's why I thought you would, you would bring a vantage point that we simply are not privy to. Right. And, and that works sometimes. Probably maybe most of the time it doesn't work, but sometimes it does work. And for the times that it works, it's worth everything. Yeah. I also think that there is that, that problem of like, um, you know, you have people that are kind of before their peak. So like, it's interesting for them to get connected to the new things. And you have people that are kind of picked already, maybe even a few times. And for them, it's actually relevant for them to stay relevant and to connect with, uh, with the newer things coming on. Uh, and the smartest right. people, I think, are the ones that realize that they're never great and they, and they need to keep learning and be connected because change is happening faster than ever. You know, I love, uh, this is something that I've, I've, I've thought a lot about over time. Um, maybe because you know I've gotten a fair number of emails from people with no clear ask, or the only ask is 15 minutes of your time, or will you invest or something like that, which happened a lot you know, while working at YC. And the thing I always want from someone is give me something concrete to bite on. Ask me a specific question about something I genuinely understand that, that shows two things. That shows one, that you've thought about why you're emailing or why you're reaching out, and two, Honestly, I want to feel useful, right? I think everyone out there wants to feel useful at the end of the day, right? Very much so. So let's take that and and roll that forward a little bit to thinking about how your A comes together, how you transition from the point of of seed into A. So seed, 5 million bucks, a lot of great people. It's a lot of money. And one of the things that I remember finding fascinating about how you were building is at that point, your entire focus 
at least from my perspective, is we're just going to build the business for as long as we absolutely need to, and capital will come later. But what was changing inside the business between the seed and, and the A in terms of the story you were telling to people outside the company? Were things evolving? Yeah. So first of all, you know, the main thing about the A was preparing it for at the seed. There was a decision at the seed that kind of shaped uh, the future financing, which was, mm -hmm. look, we, when early, we're in the earliest stage we'll ever be. We'll learn so much and things will evolve. The world will evolve around us. Are we ready to get committed to capital partners for the rest of our existence as a company? No. So we decided not to go with A funds, but rather mm -hmm. with seed funds. Can you unpack that a little bit? Like, yeah, a lot of people here who decided to raise a seed not from A funds. Some people are going to just glide over that. Be, of course, why would you raise money from an A fund at your seed? And a lot of people say, oh, wait a second. Of course, you should have Series A funds who also do seed in your seed. Why did you? Right. So it's actually cooler, right, to raise from an A fund, right? Because typically A funds have bigger names, um, yeah. more credibility, and it's nice that you have a partner that can fund you all the way through. But then it can also not fund you all the way through, which can be extremely painful uh, to recover from, um, particularly when we're, we realize, and that's the main thing about that change between seed and A, but we kind of expected that, that this was more than building a company that was about establishing a category. So for that, like, do we know like how to, like what type of, of A funds like you want to partner with for the next decade or so? Of course right. not. I know a lot of people that are like there, but I don't know what is the, the same way you have a founder kind of, uh, what is it, founder market fit or founder yeah. company fit, yeah. right? Um, like the investor fit is also as important at the individual level. So we had four VCs with NFX leading. The, it's kind of obvious, you know, why NFX is a clear choice as a brand. We're building network effects, all about building a network. They, they kind of swore their life to this. Uh, they're building this world-class expertise there. Obviously, that's relevant. But these four funds, essentially, with incredible people there that I've had a chance to know before, but, but specifically in this journey, working very closely together, we had the same incentive. But we also set up the seed so that we carve out a bunch of it um, for people that we'll bring on in the future. In fact, we continue uh, fun, uh, fundraising for a seed, essentially. You, you can't really call it fundraising, but we kept room in the seed for, I think it was like six, maybe nine months, maybe a year after. Really? We bring like those small checks. Yeah, absolutely. We bring those very oh. tiny checks, but from people who are like super relevant. And I'm so glad because the, the value sometimes uh, that they're creating is disproportionate to the uh, size check. So that's fascinating because I think that the standard answer on doing something like that, and you alluded to this before, is to just sort of throw out a couple basis points and advisory shares to people you find along the way. You actually left space so that if you found someone great, you'd say, hey, we want you involved, invest. There's space. Yeah. Exactly. Did you give them the same the terms advisory, as, yeah. as had been at the seed? Or did the, same term, the, but that's term. also the thing. Prioritizing the building of the network and the right. partners and the kind of extended team right. more important than anything else. So, um, you know, we set the the round. The we did a safe for five million. It was very not greedy in terms of 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 both numbers and valuation. Like it was very plain, very vanilla. Like so much so that kind of look back, you're like, damn it, I could have diluted much less if I did this and that. But it's like it doesn't matter. And as we closed that, essentially, uh, it was almost now the time to raise an A. But but what we waited to do an A. And we got pressure to raise an A. Of course, mm -hmm. we got pressure. Market was amazing. It was like, it will not be like that forever. You're an idiot. should totally raise. Well, um, 
we felt that the right time to raise would actually, when we would have a clear line of sight towards building a um, double-digit billion-dollar company. Mm -hmm. And when we got to that moment, we knew that, okay, it was time to activate. Okay. So let's backtrack from that moment. Okay. So that's the moment at which you know, okay, now it's time to go raise. But there's groundwork that you had to lay before then. And you had this interesting dynamic happening where you had the safe open, so you're taking little bits of money, but you weren't you know, out there saying, hey, we're still fundraising, we're in active fundraising mode. That was sort of a, a lever you could pull when you found someone great. What did you do between the seed and the A to establish the group of investors that you'd want to go present to? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, the A to me becomes, like, that, that becomes more more significant of a decision uh, in a way, because then you go to the bigger funds that hopefully will be your partners for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, they typically take part in the governance uh, in a more mm -hmm. significant way, or at least some of them do. And, um, and that's, a, yeah, that's a big decision that can backfire in so many ways. So the relationship building is, is, is critical. But in a particular case, you know, one, one of our investors that we, uh, that we chose like it's this incredible fun insight that was one of our colleagues for the series a and the the founder jeff said this one sentence that was absolutely phenomenal um i asked him like what advice would you give to would you give me and he said look at times people will not understand what you're looking to build they won't understand what you're building you understand but they won't understand so make sure that you preserve as much autonomy as you can um and, uh, and, and basically gave me the advice that is the non-investor friendly advice, right. uh, essentially, but the one that was absolutely right for the company. And to get there, you know, we had worked with Insight actually for a year before uh, we even talked about fundraise. Um, we didn't, and it was not necessarily with Jeff, it was like with, uh, with their team, it was working with their companies, became one of our, our, some incredible companies that we had a chance to work with and deploy A-teams for. Um, one of them, which direction did that go in? Did, was that you going and finding companies that happened to be Insight, or did Insight reach out to you and you said, "Hey, give us customers"? That was both actually, and both uh, both scenarios happened with many investors. So we had the chance to basically discuss and connect with a bunch of investors and seeing what they see and sharing notes, uh, seeing if we can be helpful with them, having giving them a chance to evaluate us, not necessarily mm -hmm. even from a fundraising standpoint, but more kind of holistic standpoint. Okay, so what's really clicked with AT between the seed and the A was that, you know, we started with a marketplace offering, creating cloud-based teams, but then we realized it's not a marketplace. It's a network because mm -hmm. there's no, it's not supply and demand. There, we care about builders, whether they're independent, outside of, you know, um, like doing your thing, wanting autonomy, but we also care very much about builders that are working at companies and are forming A teams around them. While you were exploring that transition, and it makes a ton of sense to me, like, a lot of people think they're marketplaces when they're not simply because people are buying things, right? And, and there's, a, there's a fundamentally different mode that in which you can operate. When you applied that out to, again, this network of investors, do you, were, you were you regularly meeting with sets of investors and filtering down to the ones that you wanted? How many investors did you then go out and actually pitch? Uh, you know, I, we have to look back at this. Um... I think it was, it was under 10 people, um, okay. I believe. Under, and is that because yeah. you developed such a good sense of who they are and what they wanted that you knew they were already bought in and excited? Is that why you limited it? 
Very much so. At that, uh, okay. yeah, at that point, it was clear. Maybe there were some that you felt like you needed to pitch to, like you needed to speak to, because like to kind of check that box. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then evaluate from there. But uh, but yeah, it was a it was a much more limited, much more limited set. But the pitch, you know, the pitch is actually interesting. Like as we talked about, like I I now learn some, I'm now learning something that been very inspired by the like working backward and backward ideas of of Amazon. And obviously, we know about this for like uh, mock press release when you before you build a, a product feature and so forth. It may be actually relevant for pitch deck, board board decks, and those type of things where you're like, let's start from the end. Hmm. Let's start from the end and see. Let's say we've done everything we wanted to do and everything went well. What does that look like? When you get there, that's what I found with the best investors we work with is that we could align on that or not align on that. But then it was a clear, it was a very tangible thing. When you started to feel that alignment from the investors, of those, call it 10 investors that you pitched, were those one-on-one pitches or were those going to the full partnership and pitching? Do you recall what the funnel looked like? You know, I didn't think of it as a funnel, honestly, because maybe the funnel was so long. <laughs> right, because <laughs> like your funnel started never all the funnel. way back at the seed. And... Yeah, I think the learning that many people go through it's not as much about the fund. It's really about the partner, like the actual yes. person. It's team building 101, right? It's not, it's not about the brand and their, what company come from and all of that. It's really about that person. Like you want that person on your team. So whether we're speaking with a partnership or not, like ultimately it's that partner. Then there's certain dynamics about the partner with their fund, which are important to keep in mind. What do you mean by the dynamic between the partner and the fund? What's the difference between a partner and the partnership? It depends. It, it's um, you know, it's like when you join a company. Mm-hmm. It's really important to understand how governance works at that company. Funds are just the same. So then the question is, who the, the partner you work with? Like, how decisions made? What's going to happen right. if there's a disagreement at the partnership level? Um, right. Because you could be in a scenario that is uh, definitely not ideal, where yeah. the partner is really all in, but it doesn't. It's not enough. Yeah, you know, I've seen this. I've seen this in a couple go right and wrong in a couple different ways. You know, I'll talk to a founder and they'll say, "Hey, we have this partner. The partner is really, really excited. We're raising this, you know, massive round." And they say they can get it through the partnership. You know that it's done. And I say, "Well, but that person's fairly new to the fund. They haven't mm-hmm. made a lot of investments yet. This is outside of the normal, you know, bounds of their investment. Are you sure about this? Right? They're going to have to convince everyone versus." If you get the founder of a fund or something like that, or someone with an unbelievable track record, well-recognized within the fund, they have more latitude to do things, um, to sort of take a swing, even if they don't get full buy-in. And, you know, understanding yeah. that, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's political weight. Sometimes it's actually governance style weight. Who can do what? It's written to the code of the decision-making process. You got to understand that. And I find that aligning its incentives there is also really meaningful. I mean, that's the yeah. one-on-one of building networks, but it's aligning incentives. It could be that a more junior partner, for example, actually you want to be his first big ticket. And it's like, right. it's going to be very clear that this company, like the, the hope is that this company is going to do extremely well. It's going to go to bat for you because like that's going to be what he'll be known for and what, or what she'll be known for. And that's how she's going to make the, the a ticket to, to, to really winning in that new position. could right. be that. Right. Um, and whether it's a senior partner or, or junior partner alike, there's also the, the kind of great, the bigger incentive of why, why does it matter to them? Like if, if it's a fairly established fund and it's a, or it's a really big fund, you're going to be a small check. Okay. You know, how does it move the needle for them truly? 
Yeah, and sometimes I think one of the tricky things here, or another tricky thing, is that sometimes you can ask the person you're talking to, you can ask the partner point blank, you know, mm. how does this work? Can you write this check? And a lot of investors will be completely honest about how this works and who they need, what they need, what the checks are. Those are the best. Those are, those are just the best investors. And some of them will say, oh, no, don't worry, I can do this. There's no problem at all. And that's always a little bit shady, but it's also a piece of information for you. And I think that founders are typically afraid to ask these questions about internal process, about who else needs to agree what the process is. But you got to do it because it's, it gives you so much information back and it avoids wasting time, honestly, on someone who maybe can't do the deal that they say that, they're, that they want to do or you know, there's always another step. Yeah, but I think what helps potentially, what helps potentially with something like this is to be very, very clear about your approach and strategy um, and be very thoughtful about it. I, obviously, going into a fundraise to just to raise money is not great. Um, to build, you know, the right network of networks, essentially, um, and the structure of it is, is that's really powerful. And I think presenting that is interesting because you're going to have some people that are going to be like, get out of here. Like, we don't want, you know, we don't, we don't want any of those like crazy stuff. And other people are like, this is exactly, exactly what I want. In a way, it's very similar to hiring. You know, I, people sometimes go, go, uh, come into interviews and they're like, let me, I got to sell my company like as much as I can. I actually find it more valuable to say the things that are the most controversial about your company. Because then you're going to get the people that really, really right. love it and there's literally no other company for them or the people that really hate it. And it's so much better to know this uh, as early as possible. I think the same thing happens with investors. Like bring the things you're not, you're not sure about. Bring the things that makes it a typical. Bring the thing that may be controversial and then you're going to have the people who will be like, this is my jam. Like this is exactly what I want to be doing. I always love the idea of using of taking like the worst thing about your company or the most controversial thing about your company and using that as a filter. Um, and in a fundraise, you know, people will often shy away from the weaknesses of their business and their pitch or their deck. But the, the better move is to be incredibly upfront. Here's the big risk. Here's how we're mitigating it. Will it work? Mm, but we've got a good plan. And look how good we are at all these other things. So, you know, you got to trust us. And that like takes away this gotcha moment that I think a lot of people will look for in disqualifying an investment. So it's great to do it in all the, in all the different places. I will add something on that point. I think there's something something I learned and didn't realize. Um, you know the the diligence phase and the closing phase. Um, how meaningful they are for the investor to actually get to know your company fully and deeply, maybe even more than you did uh, uh, before that diligence, is actually really important. Because how can they help if they don't actually know the company intimately? Huh. Uh, I did not necessarily have that perspective, uh, but now I, I do, and, and, and it's meaningful. I like that. I think it's a great way to recast what most people see as a big pain in the ass of having to go through diligence and answer a lot of questions. If you look at that as more, hey, here's how we get you even more deeply involved, more familiar with, more excited about our business, it's... Turns it upside down. I love that. When you got to the point of your pitching, you got these people. Was there anything you had to do to keep the momentum going towards a quick close or did it take on a life of its own? Getting into the, the state where we actually, it was not make or break to fundraise was the biggest for, forcing function, I think. 
Because that means that you suddenly are aligned with investors where it could be for investors that the be their best interest is to wait. The longer you wait, the more data points you have. Maybe there's a better company out there. Maybe they're not doing so well. Maybe they're doing much better, more clarity, less risk. But companies sometimes can be in the same position. Like, you know what? I can also wait. <laughs> I'll be more expensive. Um, I'll know more. Um, maybe I'll find another investor like more, you know, whatever it may be. So trying to get us to that position. Um, and that's a, that's a great testament to the team because it requires insane discipline um, to be in that position was, was probably the most helpful in, in getting something to, to get done. That's a near perfect answer, right? The, the, the idea that you could just walk away is something that people talk about being able to do and, and founders talk about how they could do it, but very few people actually can. It's often a bluff. Um, and I think the degree to which you were right about that and the way in which you're able to do it, I mean, look, a $55 million Series A is not normal, right? That's a pretty exceptional outcome um, for an A. I mean, it's more the size of, of what's traditionally thought of as a B. And I think it's, it's, it, it's because of all these things you've done ahead of time that, you know, some people get one thing right or the other thing right. And I'm not saying you did everything right, but you raised a seed from a network of people that could actually help you build. You focused on building the company and really, really meant it, right? You weren't half in, half out, and oh, maybe I'm fundraising, maybe I'm building, blah, blah, blah. You were really building the company, but a natural extension of building the company was also building relationships with investors who helped feed more business into the company, which accelerated the company and made you look better as those dots became lines, became graphs, became you know upward swings. And then you get to this sort of, transition point where, you know, you said before, there was no one catalyst. And from what you're describing, that's exactly right. It wasn't that there was one catalyst. It was just sort of this pressure wave of clarity that the business was taking off in a way that was on its way to be a multi-digit billion company that kind of makes investors have to push as hard as they possibly can. So I don't know, that seems pretty excellent to me. I think my last question for you is... Looking back at the A, is there anything that either surprised you about the process of raising the round or that you would have done differently or will do differently in the future because of what you learned? You know, I think maybe my, my takeaway for this is um, it's actually something about being in a position to say no and to walk mm -hmm. away. Let's face it, when you go to the market and you try to do a round, even if you have all the cash you want in the bank and you don't do something, it stinks. Mm -hmm. At least it stinks, right? It stinks. So there's always a cost of doing that. So it's not like we could totally walk away and everything would be totally fine. The, 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 what I'm very grateful for, and I think it would not have happened without it, was the investors that were in touch with us um, and the, the people around the table and the team. Because I remember speaking with the team. I was like, look, we're, we're, we're trying to do this. It's risky. It's complicated. Like it's not just straight up like, hey, let's just do this. Check, you know, term sheet done. Right? It was complicated. It could explode many times throughout. And we know deals get blown out, uh, uh, blown up for for less. Right? Uh, something uh, the legal, the whatever. Especially when it's a multi-party deal, it's super complex. And I told the team, and we prepared. I said they made me feel comfortable, and we tried to get comfortable with failing. We're like, maybe we won't get it done. 
Maybe it will explode in our face. We'll feel like idiots. Uh, it will sting. Um, and we'll, we will, we'll, it would be very hard not to take this like, oh, maybe, you know, like we suck in some way, right? It, it, like fundraising is so hard because like you put yourself in the thing and it's like, obviously it has a lot of emotional ramification. But we created the psychological safety and the comfort to lose that mm -hmm. one, right? And, and I think that's very important. And that's something I, I keep working on with the team and trying to get from the team. And that's frankly support that I need. And I think we all do in trying to do things our way and is to have the psychological, psychological safety and the comfort that, you know what, this might fail. It will suck. I agree. Totally will suck, but it's okay. Right. We're ready for it. Right. To actually mean that, to say it and then to actually mean it and then to practice it, I think, um, is pretty unique. So Raphael, Thanks so much for walking us through your fundraising path up to now. I look forward to uh, someday having another conversation about your B and learning even more from you about <laughs> how, to, how to do this well. Uh, but this was great. So thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much, Aaron. Super interesting. Bye-bye. Mm, Bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in to Asking VCs for Money. If you like what you heard, do me a favor and tell a friend or two that might need help asking a VC for money. And if you really liked it, write us a review in Apple Podcasts. My producer, Mickey Capper, will be extremely grateful. Thanks again, and see you soon. <laughs>